Greg Masters at Exponential Medicine here at the Hotel Dell in Coronado, California. And we are on day three of a rather ambitious schedule. Everyone's feeling it. It's my pleasure to have a encore chat with Milan Kamkamar with Sanofi. So, welcome, Milan. Thanks, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. So, uh, we spoke last year, and uh, the big topic that you spent most of the interview centered on was blockchain. Right. But we're hearing a lot here about AI, big data, augmented everything. Uh, tell us a little bit about first uh, your, uh, what you picked up this year yeah. and contrast that to maybe what you heard last year, particularly around blockchain. Has the needle moved? But, yeah. And maybe then up front a few words about what the heck is blockchain. Okay. You know, um, okay, so let's start with this year versus last year or previous years. You know, I agree all of these technologies are on the verge of convergence, right? And what we've seen in the last couple of years has been the opportunity to, instead of going for discrete pilots with those technologies as the leading edge or the leading platform into that, really taking a step back and saying, now, hang on, what is the problem we want to solve? And what is the best fit for technology approaches to that? And sometimes it could be blockchain. Sometimes it could be machine learning. Sometimes it could be even a physical hack, right? Just uh, with, with just physical properties. Um, but in all of those, what I see, it's interesting from last year to this year. Last year it was more PowerPoint and sort of, here's what we're thinking about doing. This year we're seeing the emergence of, okay, here are now some discrete studies, small enough studies, but things that at least have some compelling value behind them. Um, I don't think we've scaled or operationalized it. John Madison said it very well where he said, you know, it's operationalization and scaling that we need to focus on now as the next wave. I hope next year we're going to start seeing not just U.S. pilots, but also global pilots that are going on as well. Or maybe not just one institution, but mashups of institutions. Um, That's kind of what I see there. Um, On the blockchain piece, you know, honestly, it's moved very slowly. Um, there's a lot of EMR, EHR plays right now, which tends to lend itself to a good blockchain environment. Maybe just to explain blockchain, I'm, I'm not going to go into the technical details, but I'll put it very simple terms. Blockchain is simply there to serve as industrializing trust. right? Trust between two parties that have a transaction to make where it needs to be stored in a verified distributed environment that no one can hack. That's all it is. To me, it's no more a data management issue than big data or an Oracle database or an Excel file. It's just a different way of managing that information with more verifiable entities associated with it. So with that said, <clears throat> where are the opportunities? I think some of the biggest opportunities are going to come are around patient consent. Um, for a pharmaceutical industry, uh, when you think about running a clinical trial, you know, having an informed patient at the beginning that is in control of their own data and then post the study, still having access to their data is a massive shift in economic equations because now you're shifting the power of economics to the patient. They can now start charging post the study, hey, uh, you Mr. Researcher who wants to look at my data, here's my premium now, <laughs> right? Which I think is actually a lovely thing. We've got to shift the economics on this, otherwise we're not going to create the market incentives for people to move, right? You know, you've, uh, I think we're kind of seeing this mad scramble as well that's going on in blockchain where people are, again, it's, it's kind of leading with technology first and then trying to figure out the problem. Um, I would argue, you know, the companies that we've spoken to in this space, I would argue, please don't waste your time trying to do this in the U.S. first. We have 
a very complex healthcare system. It's not broken, it's designed exactly the way it was supposed to work, right? But we all know it's unfortunately highly inefficient, we haven't addressed it. I would argue go to more of a social healthcare system first. There at least you've got a richness and depth and density in the data that you can work with, first of all, and you've already got government sponsorship that mediates the insurance providers and so forth that often complicate the matters in the way. So I think this is going to be a really interesting play on that side. So we might see initial uh, fertile ground perhaps at the NHS or Health Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I think in France, you know, in Australia, in um, the Netherlands. I mean, man, the Netherlands government is just going off, you know. And it's interesting because when you think about digital native countries as well, like Estonia, I mean, they're like the gospel to everyone of how do you build a blockchain environment for secure identity management for your entire population of people. Right. I mean, they are the poster child. Now, of course, they've gone through their own pains, and there's a lot of valuable lessons to learn there. But if I was any blockchain uh, entrepreneur today, you know, do yourself a favor, go across the Atlantic, and take your bets over there instead first, because I think you'll have a better success of at least proving out the model. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that our healthcare system or non-system here in the United States is not broken. It was intentionally built this way with all of the inherent complexities. So uh, it might be fertile ground elsewhere. But uh, so you you drilled into um, insurance processing uh, last uh, chat. Uh, one of the things I initially saw as in my limited capacity to really grapple what blockchain is. Um, is that bundled pricing adjudication might be a, just a pristine opportunity given all this sort of allocation inside a bundle, anesthesia, surgeon, radiology, pathology. Have you seen anyone, any uptake in health systems around bundles? No. I mean, bundling of services, yes, that's true. Uh, but in terms of, you know, whether it's on blockchain or not, no. Um, you know, I think the issue that we see right now is that most of these systems, as I mentioned last time, it hasn't really changed from going from reimbursement pathways to care pathways. And even in, in an individual electronic medical record, it's actually the free text that we want to know most. You know, uh, I shared an experience where uh, my wife was in hospital last year for some minor surgery. And the woman who was next to her in the, in the room was a geriatric patient, you know, clearly dementia, Alzheimer's has set in. Her daughter was there telling the nurse, listen, can you please make sure you write down to split that tablet in half? Because my, my mom can't swallow the tablets. And the poor nurse is looking at her, you know, like a deer in headlights saying, I don't know how to do that. It's not in our system. Like, I can't do that electronically. So why did she pull out her trusty old notepad and did it again, right? So there are practicalities, right, in technology advancement that for all the good intentions it's worth, sometimes the best hacks are just as plain old physical ones, right? We need to address those and be a bit more, I would call it, you know, it's the notion of creating data-centric models married with human-centric models. And we haven't really married the human-centric model side yet. I think that's where the big breakthroughs are going to happen. So that spikes my curiosity as to whether or not this technology would enable more real-time compliance with best practices or optimal evidence-based medicine at the point of care? Yeah, no, I think it will. I, I, I do think it will. I mean, it's going that direction anyway. Um, I think it's just a matter of time, right? Uh, you know, I was asked a question recently by, by a patient who said, look, do you, have you really seen outcomes-based contracting impact the patient yet? And unfortunately, I've got to say it's a bit too early right um, because we still get bills in the mail that we don't know how and what on earth is this thing that we've apparently had done to us 
Um, so I think there's still a bit of education and awareness that we need to go there. Um, the one thing I would like to see a bit more of in the industry, ourselves, the healthcare providers, physicians, even patients, is start to build narratives around the notion of what we're working with today. We often talk about big data and you know the size of the data, statistical viability and so forth. I would argue you can actually work with thick data in this instance as well and look at more ethnographic studies and start drilling deep into a particular patient population, not necessarily longitudinally for a period of time. Because you get very interesting insights on both of those and they may impact your decision making in terms of how you best triage the care pathway for these folks. You know, we're not there yet, but I think the, I think the, honestly, the newest, sexiest job is not going to be the data scientist. I actually think that's old already now. I think the newest job is going to be those people that come in with psych backgrounds or computational neuroscience that truly understand empathy and pathways that make sense. The pathways that are meeting unmet needs that aren't always tied to a pill or aren't always tied to a reimbursement policy. It's interesting to me that empathy has become a buzzword uh, at these conferences now when uh, we operate in a service business where the mantra is always the patient comes first. Yes. Why, the, why does there seem to be a need to reintroduce the concept of empathy in institutions that are designed to serve people? Uh, you know, look, honestly, I, I would agree with you. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. I just think we're just, uh, we need something new to talk about. This seems to be the new buzzword that's being thrown around. I'm guilty of it as well. Well, but, I, but this is where I come back to it's more than just empathy, right? It's the integration of human-centric design with, with information, right, with information design and using that in a way that's communications-based. I mean, you should start any of these programs with there's a hypothesis, there's a customer. What's the narrative we want to build around that hypothesis and customer? that is going to be meaningful to those people. That's not just some mumbo-jumbo med speak, but is something that people understand. Yeah, the patients are getting more educated now. We see that, whether it's Dr. Google or otherwise, right? Um, the reality is, when you're suffering, you will take the time to learn, right? And when you take the time to learn, you will discover things that you would shake your head going, how can this be? And I think the beautiful thing that I see is singularity. People taking charge and saying, you know what, this is unacceptable. And I think that's where empathy is coming back. We've got to put that forefront. But I'll just keep it simple and just say, you know what, do what's right for the customer <laughs> at the end of the day. Don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting it uh, simply as a buzzword. Clearly, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a pathway. Yeah. Um, so you have a global perspective. Um, and you obviously see the dysfunction in the U.S. healthcare delivery and financing system. Do you have, any, what's your take on, do you have hope that we can heal this system? Or is it, does it have to be just completely deconstructed and replaced by something else? I think long-term it needs to be deconstructed. You know, what's happening today, right, if you think about what we're doing, there's really two parts of the equation, and it's actually an economics issue. It's got nothing to do with patients or anything like that. If you take P&L, the denominator is generally around people wanting to do things better. And what we're facing most of the time in exponential medicine are just doing things better, machine learning, automation, using AR and VR to access more people or train more people. To me, these are nothing more than denominator issues because it's a cost and efficiency play, right? But that's doing things better. What we need to be focused on or equally resource allocate is do better things. And that is where the breakthrough, the moonshots actually happen. And to do those, yeah, to quote Yoda, <laughs> you've got to unlearn what you have learned, right? You've got, to, you've got to get down to that road and just say, hang on, what is the outcome we want to achieve? What is the least bureaucratic process to get there? 
and I think it has to be a redesign. I don't think you can address it simply by introducing some of the tech. Letting go of implicit or conf uh, confirmation bias is tough. Yeah, I know. Again, it comes down to economics, right? If the incentives are in the market, why should I change, right? I think what's going to happen is that you're going to have patient voices that are going to start standing up and saying, you know what? Screw you, man. You better change. Yeah. So uh, last year you were in the consulting mode, uh, I think PA Consulting. Yeah. Today you've got a different nameplate on your badge. Tell us about it. <laughs> you know, it it's weird though, I've got to say, I've gone to the last three years of Exponential Med. I've worked in three different companies in that time. Uh, I hope this is not a trend. <laughs> um, no, legitimately speaking though, I think so. I work at Sanofi now. Uh, you know, I was recruited by the chief medical officer there. I had a very good relationship with him when he was back at Novartis. And Sanofi took a brave step of saying, you know what, we need a CDO, right? Uh, you know, what I find funny with these titles, it's just a title to me, right? It's, but it was so funny when I posted my update, the first question I got asked, is that data or digital? And I was like, does it matter? <laughs> really? You know, officially it's data, but I don't think you can do data today without digital, right? Uh, so I help on both fronts. You know, of course, we have a digital team and people working on all those sorts of things. But fundamentally, the only asset that we produce outside of all of this consistently year in, year out is information, is data. The problem is we don't treat that data in the same asset class as our share price or the products we produce. And I think this is when people talk about data is oil, this is how you make it oil. You've got to give it an economic value that is on par with that top level, you know, strategic business outcomes. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to help transform, right? It's not about hiring a lot of people externally. Mind you, I'm getting dynamite people joining the team, which I'm so excited for. But I really look at them as being coaches and mentors to groom and invest in my existing team that have never had the chance to really learn all this amazing stuff. You know, I have one of my, my chief of staff is over here this week. Um, she's been 15 years at Sanofi. She was running strategy for diabetes cardiovascular for region Europe, some marketing efforts, you know, very experienced physician. And I was so humbled, you know, when she said, Millen, can I join your team? She goes, I just don't know technology. And I said, well, what makes you think technology is important in this role? <laughs> it's value. We have to create value. <laughs> and, uh, and I see when you start getting that sort of swarm coming around, a couple of change agents coming around, you know, magic happens. So uh, one of the local health, not local, but Northern California, Dignity Health, they have a poster out there that says, uh, uh, no outcome, no income. Is, it, and so when many think about the new model for the pharma group, it's, uh, you know, instead of just unit sales, uh, it, what's the impact on the outcome for the patient? Do you think that's in the, in the future anytime soon? Going at risk. So, yeah, I mean, look, um, I hope so. I think we're all, you know, as an industry body, right, we're all making investments. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that Jane Jay's doing. I think what Merck's doing is terrific. You know, I think Lily's jumping in there now with things. You've got GSK just hired some consumer CDOs. My former company, Novartis, hired a wonderful guy, Bertrand. Uh, we actually both have won the Business Transformation Top 150, so I'm glad they chose a great guy uh, for that. Um, but, you know, I, I see us all, you know, really looking beyond the pill now. We've talked about that for donkey's years, right? But we've never actually executed that in a meaningful way. I don't know it's a regulatory thing now. I think the FDA stepping up and doing this work with their consortium now to really start thinking about what, what does an outcome look like in a non-pill environment? Um, can there be services associated with that? Can there be digital prevention measure, measures in there? 
I think we're all in the right steps. Do I see it in the next five years? I think we may have one or two good case studies. Uh, do I see it as an industrial capability that we're just doing as part of an operating model? Not yet. Or, or digital remedies in lieu of pharmaco remedies. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see that. You know, look, I, you know, I don't like taking medicine if I don't have to, right? I mean, I, I meditate. You know, I sleep every day from two to three p.m. because I know my brain. Um, that's the worst time to make ask me to make a decision. You know, so I deliberately try and avoid that risk <laughs> by just taking a quick power nap. But look, I, I think um, I think that will happen. I really think that will happen. Um, but it may not happen from pharma, though. I think that's going to be an interesting thing. I think market access and value, uh, when you think about players like Apple and Google and these guys, you know, as much as you can say it's like sleeping with the devil in many instances, but they're good companies that clearly have a brand and have access to people that uh, value them. Um, I think the big turning point, though, in the next couple of years is going to be things like uh, GDPR and data privacy, the right to be forgotten in Europe. I think that's going to be an international thing that comes up now. Maybe not in every country. I don't think China will probably implement that, but I think there are other countries that will do that, including the US. And when data privacy starts hitting, I think the most interesting role we're seeing emerging today uh, is not the data scientist as a new sexy, but actually the security person is the new sexy. Uh, and just understanding cybersecurity and some of those things will be a major impact to how we start dealing with value. Because if your data is not secure, we saw what happened to, uh, who was it, Experian recent. I mean, what a mess. And a, f and a fuller reveal on the scope of the breach at Yahoo. Yeah, I mean, you know, look. This is when you get oversold on hype and some clown who doesn't understand technology buys technology without understanding the full implications and almost bankrupts a company. Right? And I see this far often, right? I, I tell my colleagues at work, just do me a favor, right? You need to start learning how to triage buzzwords and bullshit, right? <laughs> because there's just so much of it going around now. Look, I'm an optimist at heart, but at the same time, I can't stand when people just throw in buzzwords in, in an application when they're doing it. And all it is is just a coded script. Like, how on earth is that machine learning, dude? I mean, come on, you know? But, okay, you know, everyone has their right to brand. It's okay. But, uh... I think we're in a position where I want us to focus more on the business outcomes, focus more on the health outcomes, and then start moving backwards from that, right? What's the story that's going to support that? You know, it's not to introduce bias, but it simply is around explaining information in a way that's not metric madness or KPI vomit, right? Yeah. That's a new one, KPI vomit. I love that. Yeah, it happens too often. <laughs> Just briefly take me under the hood of what's going to happen in your group. Any yeah. secret sauce we ought to hear about? Well, I, I don't want to make it secret. I want everyone to use this. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, an, an expert in anything. I'm simply a charitable guy to give whatever experience I've had in the past. But I shared with my team um, that really... It's not about being an innovator. It's such an abused term. It's really about having five specific qualities about you. And I actually, I, I spoke about this uh, to the UN when I was doing some uh, advisory work for the UN on the Global Sustainability Program. And they asked the same question. How do you innovate in a world that's so desperate in need of innovation in many ways? I, I call it the five C's. You know, it's about being curious, <clears throat> asking questions. It's around, um, being challenged, but also challenge. Um, just because a boss is in the room doesn't mean that their version is correct. I think there's only right and writer in context. But be you know, don't be afraid. I think in the political climate that we're in today, 
you know, we have to look at the polarization that's there and understand why people are saying that and see is there something we can do instead of saying, you know, they're an asshole and they're an asshole. It doesn't work that way. So challenging is important. Um, the third one, courage. <laughs> Change is hard. <laughs> Change just when you think you are in the bottom of the trough and there's just no way to come out. Trust me, take some time out. Give yourself some breathing space, some mind space. Focus and then address the challenge. Because you know what? Some of the be most beautiful innovation comes out of just being that little bit more brave, you know. Um, I talk about uh, charity as well. This to me is a really important thing. The, the one advice I was given by a mentor of mine before I started Sanofi, I was like, well, what do you think I should do coming here? And he said, fire all your experts, because they're the guys who are going to hold you back. <laughs> Now, I didn't quite do that. I don't think it's an appropriate way to do it, but I think it's an appropriate way to actually, um, the best knowledge is the knowledge that is charitable. And if you share your expertise, you can start grooming the rest of your organization as well as the world around you. Uh, and for me, I find that if there's one quality to remember, it's that one. And the last C is communication, right? You may be an expert in your field. It doesn't mean the person listening to you is an expert. Uh, I often use pop culture in my analogies. Uh, one day I'll talk to you about how big data is actually Michael Jackson. Right? But I find that when you get people to start thinking from their heart, not from their mind, it sticks with them more. That's what I do. Nice summary. So for people who want to follow your work, how do they do that? Yeah. Twitter at Cam. You're welcome to uh, join me on Facebook as well. Um, I don't think I use many others. LinkedIn I'm not uh, as much on. Uh, every now and then there's an article that's interesting. Um, but really FB and Twitter. You know, at Cam for Twitter. That'd be super. There you go. You covered the big three. And as a member of the Pink Sox tribe, yeah, I just I just yeah. wanna I just wanna give a shout out to Nick who uh, did the interview last year. Yes. So I'm the B team. But anyway, virtual hug, virtual hug, virtual hug. We're doing it, Nick. Okay, Millen. Well, thanks for stopping by. And good luck of Santa Fe. And we'll be following with interest your progress. You got it. Thank you.